When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Where does the university's work begin in terms of allowing all members to participate in teaching and research, and where does it end? Is diversity a matter only for the admissions department? And how do universities educate democratic citizens? who know that with certain rights come certain obligations. How is higher education linked to democracy in general? Join me in a conversation with Professor Armani Jamal, Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Thank you. I'm here today. I'm very excited to speak with Professor Armani Jamal, who is the Edward S. Sanford Professor of Politics at Princeton University, and also the director of the Mamdua Bob Center for Peace and Justice at Princeton. Professor Jamal is the author of several books. You're already on the line here, so I'm speaking about you right now. Really important books, one called Barriers to Democracy, about how democracies are established, especially in the Middle East, but in countries that are basically trying to achieve democracy. And then you are the co-editor of a book that I've considered really important, Race and Arab Americans before and after 9-11, from invisible citizens to visible subjects. So a lot of your work has been engaged with the efforts by people to create a democracy and to, to establish a democracy, which I think as a political scientist, you probably have a better sense, I tend to think of as both made up of laws and of norms, sort of rules, regulations, laws, etc., sort of what we call politics. And then, of course, also norms of behavior. How do you behave in a democracy? What are you expected to do? What's acceptable? What is out of the bounds of democratic behavior? And those norms are maybe even culturally specific, not quite as prescribed. And I know that you've been on a panel with Carolyn Rouse, who has been on the podcast before, your colleague at Princeton. So I would be curious if we could start out by saying, as a political scientist, when you work on democracy, when you bring this concept into a class for the first time, if there's a distinction that I just made, if that's even correct, that there's laws, formal rules, and norms, unwritten rules, or kind of things we've internalized and accepted as important that we all behave in certain ways, 
which has real bearing on how the university operates. That's like right on, Oli. I mean, the issue with democracy or what we consider to like democratic norms, or you might even go a step further and, and talk about civility in interactions. You have what we often refer to as like your legal institutions that sort of shape or protect or put at least some parameters on what we consider acceptable modes of behavior. We can participate in elections, we can participate in demonstrations, we can participate in free speech, right? And we won't be held accountable for our individual actions. But also there's this dimension of democracy that I think we in the United States, we do a lot better on when we're sort of preaching to the rest of the world, if you may, where we talk about democratic norms, norms of tolerance, norms of reciprocal respect, norms of toleration, especially when it comes to minority rights. So oftentimes when we think about the democratic bundle, especially when we're thinking about exporting democracy to other places in the world, we're often not only talking about institutions, we know elections aren't enough, right? We know elections are not enough, especially if they're going to bring quote-unquote non-democratic forces to power. We often talk about the the requisite norms, quote-unquote, and even political cultures that we think are really germane for the sustenance and the emergence and growth and stability of democracy worldwide and even at home. And the things you just mentioned when you just said the kind of the democratic, the building blocks, the stable ones that are formalized, so elections, certain institutions, the rule of law, respect for those institutions, enforceability, free speech, which is guaranteed the government does not jail or punish people for speaking out for dissidents. So those are legally guaranteed. And we kind of, let's say, we assume if this example, I think is very useful that you're bringing when the U.S., brings democracy to the world. We assume those things have to be enforced, perhaps gently, perhaps not so gently, but people will just adhere to them because you'll get into trouble if you don't. That's exactly right. And that the reason is only why we promote these values with such care and compassion, if not passion as well, is that because we know that across the world we have citizens who are living without these rights. So if you think about the purpose of these rights to begin with, is to allow people to voice their opinion and not be targeted by regimes for expressing their free opinion. We want to provide agency to humans in terms of political participation, being able to express their points of view, being able to participate and be engaged in their societies, talk about human rights and values that we deem important and essential. So if you sort of think about even, when we think about relating this to the free speech debate in the country, I think we often forget about what the intention of the Founding Fathers was with the idea of free speech. The idea of free speech is that you want to be able to talk about liberty and freedom and asserting your rights and agency without being prosecuted, without being persecuted, if you may, by a regime, by a government. You know, I like to compare that to the gun debate. If you look at the intention of the Founders, the idea of having guns was to be able to protect your personal property, right? Is that... Nobody should be able to come confiscate your personal property because we as a country believe in property rights and people have the right to property. It doesn't mean that you are entitled to have a machine gun that can mow down hundreds of people in society and say, oh my God, this is my Second Amendment right and and everybody needs to protect me. I don't think the Founding Fathers wanted to enable citizens to do that 
with the gun protections. Interesting. Interesting. So you're saying the Second Amendment debate has taken a law that was written without so much specificity in order to get to something else, which is it is your individual right as a citizen to own things and have property. It is also your right to defend yourself in cases when there's real threat and danger. And then what you're saying is that the Second Amendment gets interpreted then over time in perhaps very different ways, maybe not with the intention. We go to the free speech conversation, which in our country has evolved over 200 years. And the most interesting thing to me in these podcasts has been that legal scholars from across any kind of spectrum, let's say, on positions on free speech have said, of course, our interpretation of free speech has changed in this country. There were things you couldn't say 100 years ago without going to jail or 200 years ago. And that is probably wrong. We probably feel there has been huge amounts of progress in that regard. But the free speech debate is also one of those, like the Second Amendment about gun control, of what is it supposed to protect? What you just said, what is behind it? What's the intention for democratic citizens? So this is where as a, so I am not just, I want to make sure that the listeners understand, Oli, I am not a student of constitutional law. No, no, no. This is a very general discussion of what are the ideals of democratic behavior behind it. Absolutely. Exactly. Especially, and I, I'm bringing to this my perspective in terms of when we talk about promoting democracy elsewhere, what are the intentions? So let me ask, answer your question about freedom of speech. The way I understand free speech protections was basically to ensure that you and I can have this conversation and talk about the importance of free speech without feeling that the overreaching arm of the government was going to prohibit us from speaking what we think is truth or our political viewpoints. So for example, I sometimes travel to many countries that don't provide the freedom of speech guarantees. And so I will be giving a lecture and I'm reminded, don't criticize the regime. Don't say anything that will offend the political establishment. So, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable when people say this to me because I feel like my free speech rights are being violated. Like, I have to censor myself in the classroom because if I don't, I can go to jail. So that's why I love being an American, is that I can be in America and know that I can criticize this government and not go to jail. And your, sub then, your subject matter is governments. You're a professor of politics, not a professor of neuroscience or mathematics. So when you travel to a country, you're going to talk about the government, its shape, the shape it takes, what forms it takes, how it is acting. But you have to be careful not to directly criticize the existing government. Right, because you don't know who you can trust. All of a sudden, the audience becomes a suspicious audience. It creates distress with you and your colleagues. So it's, not, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, Oli. So that's why I prize free speech and our ability to engage thoughtfully in the university and in the classroom. Having said that, the free speech debate has evolved, and the way I now is see, at least when we're having free speech debates on campus, it's about this. It's that it's basically that PC, political correctness, has gone too far, and some people are pushing back because they want to be able to say things that they otherwise, quote-unquote, shouldn't say, that, quote-unquote, are no longer normatively acceptable. And normally these things that they'd like to say have to do with things that might come off as, quite honestly, intimidating, insulting, somewhat discriminatory, somewhat racist, so that makes people uncomfortable. And so all of a sudden, the free speech debate has evolved to a debate about, I want to have the right to say things that might offend you, Oli, and I really don't care if you're offended or not, that's basically your problem. This is my free speech right. 
and I don't understand how the definition of protecting free speech evolved to this idea that now it's all about let's insult each other in the public sphere. And that's like the extreme version of it. But even when we get to the extreme version of it, you will see people say, yeah, yeah, that well, that's really within the rights of free speech. It's okay, interesting so what you're describing, this process and the question you're raising. How did this happen at the free speech debates, which I think people are really struggling to come to terms with. We want to hold on to this very robust, strong, perhaps strongest defense of free speech in the world. A lot of Americans, we like to believe we have a stronger defense in other countries. It's just different, whether it's better or worse, it's a little bit of a different question. And so what you're asking is, how have we gotten there that now free speech seems to say, I mostly want to guarantee my right to be as insulting as I want to be. And actually also to touch on something you said earlier, on civility, to actually touch on the norms of civility in our discourse. It's not just we could say something offensive to one another, but actually what we're engaging in is kind of a contract, an unwritten contract that will be civil in our exchange. And that free speech now has become this method to say, I can be as uncivil as I want. I can refuse the norms you create for our conversation and get away with it because I can just say free speech. That's exactly right. I mean, that's what we have to be worried about. At least some of the debates on free speech on university campuses that I have been involved in they're not about, with all due respect, Ali, they're not about people saying, I'm afraid to express my opinion because I don't want to get arrested. They're really about people saying that, well, you know, why should I care that there are these sensitive students who might be offended by what I say? Well, because what you say is very offensive. And the first mission of the university, Ali, is to create an inclusive environment for students. It doesn't mean we can't have difficult conversations. And it doesn't mean that we can't educate on quote-unquote controversial topics. But certainly there's a fine line between education and polemical speeches that sort of target minorities. And so here's the problem with this logic, in my opinion. If Let's just go along with the discourse that we have to be very careful not to violate free speech because individuals need to be able to express their opinion, whatever it is, however wrong or right it is, or however civil or uncivil it is, because then if we start sort of regulating free speech, we're on a slippery slope, and we all know where that ends, okay? Let's just go along with this. Fine. Why is it, Oli, that as a visible minority professor myself, that it's always the same group of students who are basically upset and rightfully so, that they have to sort of swallow or withstand the free speech burden. You know, if thinking about, quote unquote, the burden of free speech, if we all believe in free speech, which we do, and we all want to sort of pay a price for free speech, then we should all collectively absorb, quote unquote, the responsibility or the burden of free speech. But always asking, the same minority group or groups to absorb the responsibility and the burden of free speech so that a majority can clearly, quote unquote, flaunt its ability to practice free speech, then there's something wrong with the equation only, right? It means that we're asking a minority group that is already, quote unquote, disaffected or marginalized or less powerful than the dominant hierarchy to consistently absorb or pay the price for these free speech protections. And that not only undermines the mission of a university, because now we're compounding 
the marginalization and the disaffection, but we're also sort of burdening these students with basically having to say, more or less, I'm fine being insulted because I want to be a good citizen because we, I support free speech. And if you don't do that as a minority, only guess what? You know, we need to socialize these people to be civil and respect democratic norms and responsibilities. So the burden falls back on the minority. So you're raising a really critical question in these two contexts. For the university, you're saying people come in and while we once people have been admitted and accepted, of course, they're on a kind of level playing field. And you are teaching at one of the most prestigious competitive universities in the world. So once students have made it and gotten into Princeton, supposedly once they pass through the gates, they're all in the same place, right? And same should apply for faculty. You are tenured faculty, a professor of politics in the department. So everything should be the same then. That doesn't mean there are no differences. There are many, many differences, but there should be an equal playing field. And what you're saying is the rules of the game, as they are currently being played out by a lot of people, saying, well, it's a little tougher on some people. They have to put up with it. They may actually learn to be sort of more resilient. And it's a little easier on other people who will rarely, if ever, be subjected to anything like this because it's, it just doesn't go in both directions. For This is really tricky because how does the university then balance its interest to say as many positions as possible, as many viewpoints? When you teach a class, you probably have a range of opinions on the Middle East, on U.S. politics, on policies, all sorts of things. And you accept all this wide range of viewpoints. How does it balance that with what you said earlier, that some people will kind of bear an undue cost? It's not fair, not equitable that they bear a higher cost because it interferes with what you're trying to do at the university, which is teach and do research and learn. Well, so that's the dilemma I think that we're facing as a university community all across the country, right? On the one hand, we want to make sure that we create inclusive environments. Diversity doesn't end simply with admissions. Diversity ends in terms of making sure that our students have equal footing in terms of education and our ability to compete out there in the society on equal footing. If they come to a Princeton or to a Columbia and have a miserable experience, we have done them a disservice. And so it's very important that the university environment, and if you look traditionally at the universities, they are the ideal, they are the utopias of the world in terms of what we want to see in terms of an ideal society is what we see in a university. So the burden is on us. We shouldn't be hiding behind the legal, this impersonal language of legal protections without looking at the subjects and the people who are being harmed by them. So as a university, it is our responsibility to be able to consistently gauge and update how best to navigate this environment. What does this mean? I'm not saying to disinvite speakers. I'm not saying not to allow certain people to speak. But I am saying that if you know there's a certain type or a certain presence on your campus that is preaching one thing, it is your job as a university to ensure that the people that you know might have been offended, to reach out to them, to talk to them, to think of ways of empowering them, to also feel validated on campus. If they're already minorities, if they're already disaffected, if the power distribution is already balanced against them, and then we do nothing but shrug our shoulders and say free speech protections, we are not servicing these communities. So I really appreciate that you kind of called me out here. It's really important when I said, well, once the students get admitted to a Princeton or any university, or it's a public university, and they get in and they've worked really, really hard and competed, then the work actually begins. 
it's not that now people have done their recruiting piece. And as we know, there's a whole court case against affirmative action winding through the courts right now. So even that's being attacked. But you're saying diversity or an inclusive environment, actually a well-functioning university, doesn't leave its responsibilities after the admissions process and then say everybody fend for themselves. You're saying it's building an environment where people can participate on equal terms, feel actually validated. And when a situation arises where certain groups, and what you just said, we know who these groups are because historically, you know, we've known how, you know, our society operates. I mean, one of your books has been sort of the shift in perception for Arab Americans, whether they are a different race, whether they are a minority, whether they are subjects, whether they are citizens, all these kinds of categories shift constantly, but we still know certain things about certain groups. So you're saying the university has a, an obligation to actually make things happen throughout the process, not just at the beginning and at the admission stage. Absolutely, absolutely. A university is basically, if you look at, unfortunately, and I, I'm not trying to place blame, Oli, but if you look at least in terms of how we've been handling this free speech quote-unquote issue, especially in the last three to four years, we are way behind the curve. We are responding always to things that are going wrong on campus. I'd like us as universities to be able to get ahead of the curve. And, and to do that, it means that we have to sort of, you know, be more in touch with our own student bodies, have the pulse of our climate on student campuses, be able to engage and, and think creatively outside the box. I think here's a situation we're sort of falling back on what we've conventionally said well, this is a democracy and everything is great. And if everybody should just understand their place in the democracy, we will be in this wonderful equilibrium. And that's the end all say all. It certainly is not that. And so we have to acknowledge that and we have to be more proactive. Let me just say one word also. So linked to this debate about what we can do as universities, I have been sometimes speechless, Oli, when in response to this recurring pattern of marginalization in the name of free speech, you saw that there was this whole, quote-unquote, we can call it a movement, or at least an effort to create, quote-unquote, safe places for students. And the amount of disparaging comments that I heard about safe space, and the way it was reduced, at least in conventional common jargon, to places where students could get blankets and warm chocolate milk because they needed a place to cry, and so people were sort of making fun of this, like basically that, you know, this is the daycare episode where people were sort of hiding out because they couldn't face real life. And this sort of went on for weeks and weeks and weeks in terms, and this is across all the campuses. But the truth is, this is where I thought there was an opportunity that universities should have seized, but perhaps not enough was done. These calls for safe spaces weren't about physical space and throw me in a basement with warm chocolate and I'm going to feel better about I'll just cry my eyes out and I'll feel better. These were cries for understanding. These were cries for validation. These were cries for, please tell me I'm not going crazy because I went to a class and the professor said something that was insulting. I went to an eating club and I was also insulted on the same day. And then I was told that I have to understand that I need to learn how to be okay with being insulted because that's what free speech is all about. And I was thrown in a basement with warm chocolate and people still made fun of me for that, right? So from the perspective of students, 
this is just horrendous. I mean, the students who are facing this. It's really, I've had a couple of students on the podcast, and it's been really, for me, just really informative and very moving also. And I've had also one student, Nicholas Whitaker, he's just a great student, and he said to me, you know what, Uli, I'm also not here to teach you what it feels like to be the kind of student I am at one of our elite colleges. It is not my job. I'm not a teacher. I'm enrolled to learn. And it's very exhausting to have this role, to continually explain to people, I'm a white man, he's an African-American young man. And I said, I really am trying to get this point, and I deeply appreciate the irony of you being on my podcast and explaining what it means to be a student in this university. And he said, no, I'm taking the time, but it's a real burden to actually continually remind people and say, this is what it's like to be in America today. And to remind people who act in two ways, as you're saying, with utter condescension or this kind of fake, feigned ignorance, say, oh, I had no idea this would ever go on for anyone here. I'm part of the whole system, but this is completely new. And why do you think this breakdown happened, this generational breakdown, that the students were, as you're saying, we need to be better accommodated in these universities. Institutions are not functioning for us and they have been built for us. And the response was largely by a lot of people in our generation to dismiss that entirely and to say, you are spoiled, oversensitive, coddled, out of control, not resilient enough, and you should just put up with all of this. This generational divide is really strange to me because as a teacher in university and I used to be an administrator, I always thought my first obligation when my students don't feel it's going well would be to think, huh. I must be doing something wrong and not you are completely wrong. <laughs> so why do you think this generational shift is going on or what's going on in the larger political culture of our country? Why this generation seems to speak and not be heard? So actually, I mean, I have a take on it and it's not validated by any scientific study, Oli, so I'm just going to put it out there. I mean, I've been now at a place like Princeton for 15 years and Princeton today looks very different than Princeton 15 years ago on the campus. I think all of the elite institutions have been very adamant and diligent and proactive in diversifying the student body. And this has meant that we are seeing a number of minorities, a number of quote-unquote of people who look different than the mainstream on these campuses, accessing these elite institutions. Remember, these elite institutions have been really the domain of the elite. And with all liberal causes that emanate from elite quarters, you know, we can pay lip service to those causes as elite, but we really are not in the trenches working. We know feeding the poor is a noble cause, but we're not necessarily in, in the soup kitchens serving the poor. And yes, we know that we can't oppress minorities. We know we want to give minorities opportunities, but it's different than to have them in our campuses and we have to offer them those opportunities. So for a lot of people, it's just, you know, again, it's not part of the worldview to now have minorities in your space and to understand that it, your job didn't end by simply saying, I'm going to give them an equal chance. Your job is about making sure they have that that equal chance is guaranteed throughout this whole process. And it means that you have to understand things that you never understood. And it means that you have to be able to more or less as a university, try to appreciate the experiences of different constituencies on your campus. And that is not an easy task, right? Because you think about an institution, how is an institution able to do that? 
And, you know, we have these, like my institution, Princeton, it cares deeply about these issues. Do we have the silver bullet? No, we don't. That's why we're having endless conversations about this all the time. But we're beginning to have those conversations and have those conversations seriously and trying to improve the situation. Having said that, Oli, we still, I still feel there's a disconnect on these campuses. I, I think, With all that, I yeah, think what's interesting, what you're saying is, I, I mean, I don't have data either. I'm just trying to figure out where we are in the culture right now. So the students right now who are graduating or have graduated, they grew up under eight years of President Obama. Obama was probably elected when they were maybe 10 or something like that. So most of their teenage years, they had him as a president. Now they've lived through two years of Donald Trump. So now they're 20, though they're sophomores or something like that in universities. And for them, the world is looking in a particular way. And I think you're pointing out something that institutions are strangely slow to recognize who America is, as if America hadn't always been everybody. And so I'm kind of interested how you see this, because as I said, you know, one of your books and the studies you've done, you did a lot of your research on perceptions of otherness and how, for example, Arab Americans become more visible in different ways after 9-11. They were there before. It's not like there weren't any before, right? You grew up in California. So the visibility or the awareness changes and there's resistance, it seems. I mean, it's exactly right. Like, for example, one of the issues that came up is with on this issue of Arab Americanness or Muslim Americanness, right? Is that, you know, people want to feel free to talk about Islamic terrorism, quote unquote, a term that's called Islamic terrorism. Now, mind you, like anybody who's Muslim is going to be offended when you term it Islamic terrorism, but that's what the mainstream media calls it. That's what mainstream America calls it, right? And so you expect, at least in the university, that there'd be more nuance. But then, you know, people might want to explain I'm going to ask you for so, and the offense consists in identifying terrorism with a religion because we don't say Christian exactly. terrorists. Yes. Right. That's exactly right. Or saying that, you know, well, you know, those terrorists are deriving their motivation from their embrace of Islam. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, you've just offended every single Muslim in the room who doesn't believe that his or her faith is about terrorism or support for terrorism. It's hard for a student to stand up and say, excuse me, first of all, I don't think you understand terrorism. I don't think you understand Islam. You just offended me. And I know that I'm just a freshman who's entering the university and you're a prestigious professor, but I'm really uncomfortable because I felt like everybody was staring at me in the room as well, right? I mean, how do you deal with that? We don't mean to put anybody of our colleagues on the spot. I'm sure (laughs) I learn every day and I kind of feel, so how does... A situation like that, how do we navigate through this? Because as we also see on the national stage, this happens on a daily basis now, not just in universities, but since we have an administration that has certainly no politically correct filters and, you know, the president likes to kind of blow up these politically correct taboos. So you have these scenes all the time. Right. I mean, so this is a very difficult situation for the university, right? First of all, you know, your students are offended. So now they're sort of talking amongst each other. And they're sort of identifying, quote unquote, the racist pockets on campus and the non-racist pockets on campus. As an administration, are you really going to go into the classroom and tell the professor what they can and should, should say or or not? I mean, of course they can't. Uh, that's totally antithetical to whatever a university stands for. But nevertheless, you know you have students who are offended. So you want to sort of be able to signal to your students that you appreciate their concerns whether it means sending them to the basement with warm chocolate or saying to them or trying to validate them in some other way. But then the same students go on to the next class and they encounter the same thing. And they go on, they're sitting in frisk 
or in the student you know, center and they're watching Fox News and they're insulted again. So then what is, I mean, you're asking the right question, Oli. What is the responsibility of the university for these students? It's certainly not sufficient to say, well, you know, we're all about free speech. This is all about free speech. I mean, you guys just have to toughen it up and deal with this. It's basically telling these students that, look, the way the students are seeing it is that I worked my whole life to get through high school. My parents probably had to work two jobs slightly above minimum wage to help me get here. I have made it to the Ivy League, everybody's dream, and I'm being discriminated against. What is going to happen to me when I leave Utopia, which is a university, and try to compete out there in the real world? I won't have a chance. And so that's what we need to prevent as universities. Or they're saying, I'll have a chance, I'll do fine, I'm a year grad, I've gotten through this program, but I haven't really been fully able to realize my potential because it is such an exhaustion to deal with this every single day. What people have also disparaged as microaggressions, and they say the continual presence of these kinds of moments of alienation is just exhausting to work against, with other people in the room sit around and just do their math homework and don't have to deal with any of that, or they're doing their political science homework, so that it wears people down and it doesn't actually work in the interest of the universities to produce the best possible students, to make them learn the most. Absolutely. No, and then and here's the issue. I mean, one of the advantages of diversifying your institutions is that it's supposed to be a two-way street of reciprocal education. We're not, quote-unquote, only doing quote, the minorities a favor by admitting them to our institutions. We're supposed to be learning from them. We're supposed to expand our horizons and worldviews. And we're not paying attention to that. We're denying ourselves a very fruitful avenue of knowledge. And so we have to be mindful of that. And the university needs to think creatively of ways to ensure that that two-way education process is happening. Oftentimes, the free speech debate is used to say, look, it's going to be one way. Right. I've had a couple um, very distinguished constitutional scholars on the podcast, which has been really wonderful and informative, you know, deans of law schools, etc. And I said, it's kind of on you to make sure that people understand how the First Amendment works and not just to keep on intoning First Amendment as if it's a self-explanatory law of which there exists none. There's no such thing as a law that enforces itself is never interpreted in a static. You are saying that when the response is by the university, free speech, meaning it may be tough, we don't even really care that it's tough, we don't even really hear that it's tough, we don't even want to know about it, instead of saying, this is an awkward moment, it's a bad moment for all of us, we're all in it, it sounds like there was a pattern where people are made to feel not part of it or, or made too visible in the room, for example, if you're a minority student, visible minority. I think one thing that has also changed that the students then take to social media. So I actually think the university gets very skittish because it realizes the students keep on talking about what happened in this classroom. Whereas previously you could say, well, one thing happened, someone talked about it, it was awkward, and there could even be a sort of, let's say, in the best cases, there could have been a maybe direct apology or recognition that this was not an intentional, you know, kind of slip of the tongue. This was actually out of ignorance, let's say, or, you know, not informed and sort of listening. But now it's already been inflated in another way. And I think students are taking to social media not to take down their institutions, but they feel that they're not being heard otherwise. 
That's absolutely correct, right? And remember, on social media, you always have an audience, right? So it's a form of validation. And it operates really against, quote unquote, like these traditional mechanisms of having to deal with, let's say, the problem on your hands. Once it goes out to social media, it just creates like a, a whole different set of things, opinion. But nevertheless, it shouldn't be the case that because we're afraid of social media reactions, that that's why we're going to improve the college climate, right? I mean, if in the beginning, we already had the right mechanisms in place at the university, people wouldn't rely so heavily on the social media. A university has many goals and many mandates. And one of the, the core mandates is to educate and to create these inclusive spaces. Um, and it's not simply about, you know, being able to check off percent of diverse in body to say, okay, our trustees are going to be happy because now we're like more diverse. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And just to be fair, Oli, I think if most of my colleagues were here and the people that I work with on campus all the time on the same issues, they would agree with me. They are all working on similar issues. I would agree with you too. I think the first thing is they are deeply committed to their students and to teaching. I do think a lot of my colleagues become a bit hesitant when I've ventured into territory to say, well, certain things maybe are not worth bringing to campus. I've actually used this phrase somewhere. I said certain ideas do not merit debate. That elicits a lot of responses. And people think, no, 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 no. The university is where everything and anything gets debated. I have been tenured in the department, so I know very well that many things are excluded from our conversations. Because if I were to come and teach astrology in your political science department, you wouldn't even grant me an invitation. So we exclude certain <laughs> ideas every day, right? Right, right, right. I am very concerned about what voices, what opinions, what arguments do we privilege over those that we don't. Having said that, Oli, as a university, so for example, let me tell you, one of the times I think I was most concerned about this free speech issue was when a talk was being given on campus where the speaker more or less was arguing that some people are genetically inferior to others. And we all know the genetically inferior subtype was not like your average white person. So by default, that person was going to be insulting a huge number of the students and the faculty, right? So as an administration, I mean, you know, I mean, the question is, is there room for debating these very insulting and offensive ideas? And so, you know, part of me sort of felt like, why do we have to keep having this discussion when it's already been scientifically proven that this is just non-valid? If the purpose of these speeches is to consistently provoke the student body in the name of free speech, then there's something wrong here. So that's the first thing. But the fact is that we could ne we never really could only even have that conversation. But second, let's just assume we don't want to touch it because once we touch this as a free speech problem, we're going to then, let's say, the next time we have a feminist scholar who's going to come in and argue that women are better than men, we're going to have a bunch of men who are offended and say that she can't speak, right? We don't want to set precedents that we can't sort of walk back up, although my feminist scholar friends would say that no, those are totally different things, and I would agree, right? Let's just go along with the debate, Oli. If I know that somebody's coming to my campus to give a very provocative talk, I should be prepared to basically ensure my students who might be subjected to this grueling and unfair polemical speech, the ability to, for them to either celebrate who they are, 
to have speakers who come on campus to say, you know, when this speaker comes, you should know X, Y, Z is incorrect. Like we have to be prepared, but we can't be in the business of insulting huge segments of the population in the name of free speech over and over and over. As a political scientist, I'm going to ask you a question sort of about the role of argument in a democracy of sort of good arguments. So you have a good argument and then you maybe have an argument that may be scientifically incorrect, may just be wrong, may be obsolete, may be settled. But if it's presented with enough pizzazz and enough of a circus and, and a show, it may actually get more traction. So a lot of the people coming to campus come to get attention. They want to go to Princeton University to validate their viewpoint because it's very prestigious to have been invited to Princeton or Berkeley or Wisconsin or the University of Texas, any of those institutions. So as a political scientist, how does the public decide between a good argument versus one that is presented with the most technicolor, special effects, best social media campaign, the most charismatic speaker? And I think from Aristotle to Judith Schlar, There's been always this challenge, how do you counter a good argument if the argument is not a good argument, but just the most spectacularly presented one? Right. This is really a tough issue. It's not very easy, Oli. But I mean, I'd like to think that as a university and university community, we are trying to shape normative debates worldwide at some level, regardless of you know what those debates are. And we are basically trying to broadcast our norms of civility and tolerance and respect as academic communities, I would like to believe that we're in a day and age where we understand what is sort of provocative speech that is intended to provoke versus intellectual speech, right? And yes, there's a gray area, but you know, it's not the first time. It's sort of saying that the universities have never been asked to take positions on controversial issues. And the truth is, no, universities have always been asked to take positions on controversial issues. When universities had to admit blacks, they took positions. When they had to admit women, they took positions. When they had to sort of, you know, even diversify their student bodies. When they adopted affirmative action, nobody said that, oh, it's all about equality. We had to understand that some people were disadvantaged in society and we had to create our policies of affirmative action. And now we have to make decisions about, do we want the university to become hotbeds for the dissemination of hate and provocation? Or do we want the people who visit our campuses to come to our campuses and reflect the norms that we want to espouse? Here's the other issue about this, Oli, that I can go on. If I told you that For example, a hypothetical person who is a minority is going to come to campus, is going to basically talk for one hour, telling us how bad the white people are, how horrible they are, blah, 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 blah. I guarantee you that you're going to have a discussion about, do we really need this minority person trashing around white people? Like, what is the utility of this talk? And quietly, perhaps even before it's publicized that, that this person was even on the invite list, this person is not even invited, right? Let's just be honest about it. The invite list doesn't just present itself from the sky. The invite list happens through human agency. And sometimes more often than not, people end up on the invite list because the people who are doing the inviting are either provocative or because they're a little bit ignorant. They don't understand the dynamics of a certain issue 
or they might have heard something on NPR that sounded interesting, but they don't understand the history behind it, right? So again, let's just be honest about it. The people doing the provoking are more often than not of one political orientation, and the people who are being offended more often than not, this is where we sort of start, are of one political orientation. If I told you I was, I can just name at least now 10 people that I could tell you only, oh, it would be interesting to hear them speak in public, but I will tell you why I would never invite them because I think it would be devastating. It would be devastating for the university. It would be devastating for our, our student body. It would be devastating for the norms that we want to espouse. I mean, do we bring in dictators who have killed thousands of people to speak at our universities? But actually, this is interesting. What yeah. you're saying is you make decisions and you're not exercising censorship. You're not saying these people must not speak and I'm giving up on free speech. But you're saying for this community to do what it is meant to do, I will actually use my position to invite people in a way that's productive, that advances knowledge, not just to bring up a show and provoke it, especially when people can be seen elsewhere. So you're saying it's more your norms guiding your behavior, not the rules. You say, yeah, they would have a right to speak, probably. I wouldn't probably prohibit them. But who does that and for what purpose? Why are these people brought and it disrupts the community in very costly and damaging ways? So you're right, kind of exactly. saying people have to be brought into these norms to say this is actually one of your obligations. You're part of a community. You have to participate in it. Every community has its norms with privileges come responsibilities fully. This is what we lecture. This is what we preach to communities across the globe. We need to be able to have these conversations. I need to be able to say to somebody, hey, to Oli, hey, Oli, why are you inviting so-and-so? You know that they're just going to come and pounce on our students. It's going to take us two or three weeks to recover from this. Is it effective use of our community? That to you, honestly, you looking at me and saying, don't you, you don't demand that this is a, a society. Don't make me feel like I am uncivilized or I am undemocratic or I am intolerant because I am expressing a valid concern about the consequences of provocation and hate speech, for example. So would we say that in some ways that what you just said, that sort of rights come with responsibilities, if we as Americans go around the world and try to, let's say, assist people in partnerships to establish their democracies, right? Because we don't impose that on people. We sort of do it with compassion, you said. We would say these rights, such as free speech, they come with a certain responsibility. It's not just you get free speech and it means anything goes. It means quite the opposite. It means you're participating in a democracy where viewpoints are valid and can be expressed without fear of reprisal. It's a kind of teaching what free speech is rather than this is just a blunt instrument. We'll give it to you. You do whatever you want with it. Exactly. And, you know, allow the toughest students to win, right? Or something of that effect. Right. Which would be the student who's probably already in a position of some kind of power or advantage in a way. They'll win because power likes to protect itself. <laughs> right. Let's just be very pragmatic. We live in a hierarchical society. We live in a society where power is not distributed equally. That's why we have, we've had we applause to begin with, right? We understand that. And so free speech becomes a tool that benefits those in power. You know, you're compounding the problem that you claim that you're trying to address right. with all your diversity initiatives to begin with. That's really a good point. Actually, I had a couple of conversations after Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan this past summer said that free speech has become a weapon of the partisan conservatives to advance their agenda. It's a very 
strong warning shot kind of she read it from the bench on the supreme court and a couple of law scholars have talked about that so what you're saying the university should not allow free speech to become such a weapon and should actually say this is an empowering one of our most important concepts and if people participate in a conscientious way it can become that that's 100 percent. i mean the way we understand free speech really is that i as a professor my students can talk about their political views without being persecuted against, but it doesn't mean that we have to privilege certain voices in the name of free speech to insult and create, quote-unquote, hostile environments for our students. I mean, at some level, that contradicts the mission of the university. And we need to be able to have this conversation without people thinking that we are advocating taking down the U.S. Constitution. Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's the issue. Right. And remember, a lot of harm has been done in this country in the name of the legal rights that were on the books in certain time periods. Right. We don't live in a society where the laws have been, we haven't had to revise our own laws. Now, I'm not saying that we need to revise the free, just so that the audience is clear. We don't want to revise or take away the right of free speech. We want to understand what intention is and how it can best be used in the context of the university. to further the mission of the university. Exactly. And I think your example or sort of the way you framed it in the very beginning to say, because America is also in the business of this compassionate assistance and mutual partnerships. I actually once asked Susan Rice a long time ago when she was at the UN, I said, do we actually impose our values? And so I asked a very crude question. She didn't appreciate it. And I said, do we impose democracy? She said, no, really, it's in consistent partnerships of equal partners. And I said, well, what if they came up with a different way of running their country? She said, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They would know this is the best possible way. <laughs> so so you, you're framing it saying America is teaching itself continually and the world in a way and not in a condescending way, but in a partnership that this thing such as free speech can be used for good or for ill in a university should really be used for good. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to thank you. This is Professor Armani Jamal at Princeton University. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Ali. It's been a great pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I can only imagine how fortunate your students are to have you as a professor at the university. So I really want to thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very fortunate to have them and fortunate to be on this podcast. Thank you for reaching out to me, Ali. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, have a great one.